one of the great things of Japanese corporate culture that I found was the mentorship idea, the senpai kohai at every level. They take, a, take it very seriously to have a mentor. I would seek out and use your uniqueness to have your pick of the litter <laughs> as a foreigner because a lot of people are curious. Use that to your advantage and find good mentors who can help you navigate company rules or how to get around difficult bosses or learn the rumors of what's going on so that you're not 10 steps behind everyone else and find mentors. Konnichiwa, minasan. Bijinasu Successu Japan no podcast de yokoso. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan-specific communication skills, especially in business. While I don't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Just a quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it also helps me to keep going as an independent creator. So thanks in advance. In today's episode, I share a conversation I had with Michael Howard Thurison, a former Japan-based consumer electronics product manager who is currently working as a U.S.-based marketing manager for Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing. He is also the author of the memoir, The Salary Man, which documents some of his experiences and misadventures that he had accumulated over the course of a decade as a foreign sarariman in Japan. But before we get into the interview, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the job searching term, shu shoku katsudo. Shushokukatsudo refers to the activities that people do while job searching. Today, there were a lot of interesting and important Japanese terms that Michael brought up during the interview, but I just wanted to keep things simple this time and formally introduce a word that's the foundation of today's discussion. Sarariman. 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 As you can probably guess, this is just the Japanese version of the term salaryman in English. Culturally, however, it can really represent the stereotypically devoted Japanese office worker who works ungodly amounts of overtime and is more or less fully devoted to their company for their entire working life. The rough equivalent for a woman would be oeru, which stands for OL or office lady. And as traditionally women would stop working after getting married and having children in Japan, this term has a different connotation than sarariman that makes it not quite interchangeable. But without any further delay, let's get into today's interview. My name is Mike Thurison. My pen name as an author is Mike Howard. I live in Chicago.、Uh, I work for Amazon's Kindle Direct Publishing Group in a marketing job. And that's the tool I use to publish my book and my manga series. So、uh, that's what I do. I lived for 13 years in Japan, in Tokyo, and returned to Chicago last September.、Uh, I'm from Chicago originally. So I went around the world and came back home to, to where I'm from. So my job is basically I'm a, 
I'm an Amazon person, but I have a, a whole um, hobby and side job of writing about Japan and what it's like to work there. I, I worked for Japanese companies before Amazon Japan for almost a decade in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we'll get into that. That in a nutshell is, is who I am and what I do. Yeah, awesome. Could you tell me why you decided to have a pen name? Was there any reasoning behind that? Yeah, I wish I had a, a science to that that reasoning. There's no right or wrong, I guess, way to, to publish. I was mindful that I worked full time at these companies. And I was a little, I was wasn't naming the companies or people or anything, of course, in the book. I'm talking about culture or communication concepts and funny situations. So I didn't see a risk, but I didn't see an upside either to using my name. <laughs> and so I played it safe and I, I used my middle name, Howard, as my last name. So I felt like I was kind of going halfway <laughs> and creating a pen name. That makes a lot of sense if you wanted to be especially sensitive to your past employers. I don't think it hurts at all to take that route. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Would you mind telling us a little bit more about what you do now? You said that you work full-time at Amazon, but I guess what is your position more specifically? Yeah. So yeah, Amazon's so huge. Yeah. <laughs> so to say you work at Amazon is not very specific. Um, so uh, they have a books division, of course, and they have a product called Kindle Direct Publishing, which is a free tool for anyone to publish a book, both an ebook or a print book. Uh, and I work in that team doing marketing to authors or people who want to be authors, helping them learn about um, the benefits of self-publishing, how to use it, how to make money off it. So I run marketing campaigns for them. So why did you decide to come back to America, especially during a pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, interesting timing. I had been through the gauntlet to tell you the truth of living in Japan professionally. I had um, not found a fit for most of my career in Japan with working in Japanese companies, very, very Japanese companies, traditional in the electronics industry. And it sort of took a toll on me. I, I ended up finding a great home at Amazon Japan in a device sort of electronics role. And that was great for me, but I was ready to come back to the US even a few years ago, I think, and got this opportunity with the self-publishing group at Amazon just unexpectedly. And it be really because of the pandemic, I could be based in my hometown of Chicago. And so I was just jumped at it. You know, it's not every day you can go back to your hometown and you know, you don't want to say something good happened out of the pandemic, given the toll it's taken on people. But in that case, it probably allowed me to actually come back to my hometown in Chicago in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, as horrible as things are, there do tend to be hidden opportunities <laughs> in yeah. terrible situations, that's for sure. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to publish this memoir about your experiences as a foreign Saturday <laughs> I jokingly, I jokingly say it was self-therapy. <laughs> but I, I noticed that a little bit. <laughs> it, I, I used humor a lot to offset some of the struggles. Um, I had a ba uh, background in journalism before I became a salaryman. I had been a writer and a reporter and business for newspapers. And I've done freelance writing for a long time, um, almost 
really secretly on the side in some of my jobs. I was still doing it. But I started blogging f- about my experiences as a salary man at, for, at first. This is about seven years ago. And I found a manga artist, a Japanese manga artist who was a freelancer just by doing a lot of searching and emailing her uh, and worked on her, met her and sold her on the idea of doing illustrations for my stories. So kind of like punchlines to the situations. And we started slowly with the blog and the name of the blog, this is seven years ago, predating the book. The name of the, my blog was called uh, The Manner Mode. Manner Mode, of course, is the term for, I think every, your readers might know and you know, it's the name for turning silent mode onto your phone um, so it doesn't disturb other people around you on trains. They call it mana modo. And so I called it, I took manner mode as my behavior to fit into Japanese companies. It's my manner mode. I got to stop being so American and sloppy and messy. I got to get into manner mode. I used to tell myself that. It's just my way of fitting in. And so I called my blog manner mode. And I wrote like dozens and dozens of blog entries over a couple of years with her, lots of illustrations. And I taught the manga artist English on, as a payment. So we had like a barter. I couldn't afford to pay her. <laughs> and it was a test. And it went so well, I thought, okay, this, is, this could be a book. And so once I left and uh, the Japanese company, my last Japanese company in 2017 and joined Amazon Japan, I discovered the Kindle Direct Publishing tool to self-publish. And long story short, I gave my artist, my manga artist an advance for a bunch of illustrations. It was painful, but it was worth it uh, <laughs> to pay in advance and did like 75 illustrations with her and wrote the book, uh, 22 or 23 chapters. And it was a way for me in a lot of ways to get like a goal, a lifelong goal done of writing a book, a memoir. I'd been through some crazy situations in Japan, really, um, cross-cultural. Some of it was very funny and some of it not so funny, um, but a lot, a lot learned, good and bad. And I just thought, I got to get this down for my sanity. I want to do this. I know there's a lot of people who would like to read about it. It's you're like your, your listeners, a lot of life lessons and benef- good things and bad about every, you know, the cross-cultural experience. And I just, and I wanted on the other side too, a way to show all my friends and family and former colleagues, this is what I've done the last 10 years. You wonder what I was doing over in Japan, read the book. <laughs> it was an easy way to, to answer that question. Yeah, even just for that purpose, it's almost worth it. Just to be like, not have to rehash your whole life story for the past decade to everybody who asks. Just be like, oh, here you go. <laughs> yeah, read the book. <laughs> read the book. But yeah, I agree. I think that the little manga illustrations make it a lot easier. Yeah, like you said, create exclamation points and points of reference for the stories going on. So I definitely appreciated those. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Even though they were expensive, but they were worth it. So. <laughs> I think it's, um, I learned a lot about Japanese culture just working with uh, my Japanese manga artist because I was not a manga follower so much. I, I had a few favorites, but I never really followed it like like otaku level or serious. But I came to really appreciate like how that whole culture of the manga artist. She taught me all of it. And so it was like lots of education that came out of, of doing that project. 
shifting gears a little bit, if somebody walked up to you and said, hey, I want to go work in Japan, I want to go work in a Japanese company, where would you start in talking to them about that? <laughs> I assume we're talking about going to live in Japan. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I would start, and I learned this the hard way. So this is sort of a life lesson. Start with what are your goals? Okay. Is it because what you want to do is decide, I think when you're in, starting to get into negotiation for a job with a Japanese company, is it a say shine job or is it a chaos shine job? Is it a permanent employee or a contract employee? That is very practical way, a very practical way to start your thought process, I think, because it can prevent a lot of things, trouble later, and it can help you later. If you have an idea like, I just want to be there a few years, uh, I want to learn about their industry, or I want to just get to Japan. I want to learn the language through working in an office. If it's any of those things, you know, you want to probably lean into the contract worker idea which might be easier for the company anyway. And you make a little more money doing that too, I think overall. Rather than the Seishine permanent employee route, which can be limiting financially and can take a long time for you to get any kind of role that's defined. Um, I found the Seishine role is we're treated as like your first year, you're just, you're training. <laughs> we don't really, what you did before doesn't matter that much. You don't know our company and we're going to let you sit there for a year and just learn through osmosis. And that can be very tough for a lot of Westerners, I think, who have specific goals, um, have an idea they want to use their talent right away. So I think having the Seishine versus Kaokshine um analysis in your head before you get into the decision can help you a lot. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Especially if you're mid-career, I can see how it'd be really frustrating to go in and be treated as a seishine instead of being able to go in and do the things that you've been working so hard to gain skills in. And then is it also the case that seishine are just more likely to be put in jobs where they legitimately don't even have the skills they need, but they're still expected to do them. That's, that's a strong yeah. trend as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was just like pinballed around various jobs uh, in my third companies. So this sounds ironic. I was a Seishine lifetime employee four times. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I spent four lifetimes, <laughs> uh, but it was like, yeah, they would pinball you around because they thought it was just good training for you to know the various departments, regardless of whether you were doing an efficient job in that role or not, if you didn't have the background. And a lot of times you will, as a station, just get put into situations where you're just like teaching English, really, on, on in a glorified English teaching role or translating emails or writing emails for bosses. And this can be tough for a lot of people who come in mid-career. So I don't argue against being a Seishine. I think if it's something you are dedicated to or you love their industry and the company is an icon and something like that, it can be a very stable way for you to approach a long-term goal to live in Japan. 
And if your spouse is Japanese, that can also be something worth considering is the stability factor or you have children. And so depending on your age and your fit, it's a good decision to have in your head before you go in. Yeah, just important to know what you're getting yourself into before you enter the company. But are contract employees also treated a little bit like second class employees in Japanese companies as well as there that sort of dynamic there or not so much? Depends. Okay. Yeah, it, my first role was actually technically a Kayakshine, a contract employee. And my salary was like 30% higher than the people my age. And my boss had blabbed about my salary to everybody before I even got to Japan. And so I'd be sitting there getting this royal treat on one level, like, oh, but Mike, your, your business card says general manager in Japanese. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like general manager? They're like, yeah, because your salary was this high. They had to give you a fancy title. And I was like, well, I don't want a fancy title. <laughs> like, I, that's, I'm not a general manager. And so it threw me into a loop where it was like expectations up here, but actual role given down here. And it was like really uncomfortable. And yeah, I'd be getting these little like, I'd go to the copy machine and this guy would come up to me who's th like 25 years older than me. And he'd go, Mike Song, maybe you, me, same salary. And I'm like, what? How the, you know? How do you know that? So as a chaos shine, to answer your question, they throw out the normal etiquette sometimes, the normal secrecy or privacy to people's personnel files. <laughs> That's what happened to me in my first role. It was like, oh, he's a chaos shine, so we can talk openly about his salary or like we can, I don't know. It, it, it put me in uncomfortable situations. And I did have to leave after my second year because the Lehman shock happened. And the company's revenue was like basically cut in half and they got, <clears throat> they got rid of all of their contract employees. So that's the risk, the downside of it in a lot of ways. Yeah, you're the first ones to go because lifetime employment <laughs> kind of entails not cutting people out as soon as there's an economic downturn. So right. <laughs> at least in right. theory. Can you tell us a little bit about some things that you appreciated most about the working culture in Japanese companies? Yeah. I think camaraderie and their ability to blow off steam <laughs> is impressive. I enjoyed the Zakaya quite a bit as a way to blow off steam. Maybe that was because the job wasn't going so well in a lot of cases. But no, it, it, all joking aside, I think you get a feeling of safety and like belonging, as fleeting as that is at times for us foreigners to really tap into that security and safety, you can feel it around you. Like people are a little more at ease. They might be bored or they might be having the same problems we have as Americans, but they have a little bit of a sense of security I find over there in Japan, the permanent employees in these companies. That's enviable, I think. It's almost like being a college professor with tenure and walking around campus, you know, smoking a pipe. <laughs> it's that I always used to look at professors that way, like, boy, that's a peaceful looking life. And, you know, while I'm going through like, you know, midterm hell and trying to find my, my first job out of college, looking at that and going, hmm, that's the way I kind of looked at some of the work culture there. Like, boy, you know, they, I'm, as much as I complain about 
my ability to fit into the the work culture here. That's something to note is how peaceful and at ease some of them really go until the retirement. So that's impressive to me. It's obviously been changing a bit in recent years, but that sense of security of knowing what company you belong to and what your future will look like in that company has to be very reassuring. I just almost can't even imagine it as an American. It's such a foreign concept because here everybody's expected to just jump around. That's how you get advancement in a company in companies is through jumping around, not staying in the company. It's, it's a little aggressive and Darwinian. A little aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us something that was especially difficult for you with working culture in Japan? I alluded to some of this, but for me, it was this really hard to describe combination of boredom and stress. And I was working in extremely traditional companies. So I, I think my case is a little bit of an outlier. I don't think most people might have the same experience, but boredom in the sense I wasn't giving, given anything of consequence to do my first year, at least, and nothing specific to own, no clear goals. And my job title was, or my job responsibilities were very ambiguous as were a lot of the people around me. I found the ambiguity very who does what? And that is very hallmark of a lot of traditional Japanese companies is they have very ambiguous job responsibilities for a reason to one enable team mindset, but also to avoid responsibility (laughs) and the pressure of that. So it's a double-edged sword, good and bad. So I think that's, that was the most difficult thing was like boredom and then stress of that ambiguity And then knowing I was sort of being watched like a hawk because I was such an oddball. And so I was like, well, why are they watching me? They haven't given me anything to do. (laughs) You know, I was like that frustration at that. Like, give me something to do, then you can watch me. So that was the part that was the most difficult was like trying to navigate that. I had to like learn how to look busy. And that was not a skill that was innate to me. I learned from some masters about how to look busy, <laughs> how to set your meeting schedule for that day. So it looked busy. You were productive by having many meetings. That was just like a very difficult life to live for me. Do you have any advice for coping with that sort of thing? Because like I mentioned with just American business culture, it's so opposite in a lot of ways to what you just described. So as somebody with that more, I want ownership over this project so I can put my name on it. So I know what I have to do. So I know that I can excel at it. How do you cope in a situation that's drastically different than that? I think you adopt one of the great things of Japanese corporate culture that I found was the mentorship idea. The senpai kohai is everywhere. If you look at every level, they take take it very seriously to have a mentor, informal even, it just happens organically. Seek that out. And that can be a lot of fun personally and you know, professionally. Yeah, maybe sometimes it's, it's not as so much about professional as it is about personal. I would seek out and use your uniqueness to have, have your pick of the litter <laughs> as a foreigner because a lot of people are curious uh, and it's a great thing about Japanese culture is the curiosity and foreign cultures. So use that to your advantage and find good mentors who can help you navigate company rules or how to 
get around difficult bosses or learn the rumors of what's going on so that you're not 10 steps behind everyone else and find mentors. That, that is my recommendation to navigate difficult situations of fit yeah. in a Japanese company. And you found that kind of the novelty of being the resident gaijin was enough to give you a bit of a head start in cultivating those potential mentorships? It, it did. It gave you, well, automatically, there's usually, you know, these companies hire you for a reason. They have people who understand English and those would be the, you know, the people that would just naturally gravitate to that. And so that's the place to start naturally. And that's usually where I ended up finding those mentors is obviously the language gap. I was looking I, my Japanese was much worse probably than a lot of your listeners who go into the job. I was at like the, you know, Yonkyu level and, or even maybe not even that my first job. So I had to really find people who could of course speak English well in the beginning to help me get from point A to B. So then with the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> is mm-hmm. there anything that you would have done differently during your time as a salary man, if you could? Yeah, I think you have to play within their rules and then you'll be fine. It's when you start trying to go around rules uh, that gets you in trouble. So case in point, I was struggling. I was just randomly sent one time to work in a factory in the far outskirts of Tokyo for like a year and a half. And it was a two hour commute each day with like 40 minutes of walking. It, It killed me. It was just a murderous commute and not a fun role. And it sort of took a toll on me physically or like mentally. I would have taken them up on their offer to do Tanshin Funing. They put you up in, they rent an apartment for you near the factory, pay for it and give you a stipend. And would have done that, not not that I was trying to get away from my family. I had two young kids and that's why I did that commute for almost two years. But it took a toll and it probably came out in a little bit of frustration in my job at that toll, I would have tried to make it easier on myself and probably everybody and just taken them up on their, their resources that they offered to let me, to help me get through that. And I just sort of put my American dad blinders on like, no, I can't live away from my, I can't be away from my baby for even a night, you know? And that was just like, maybe in hindsight, I would have been better off could have lasted longer in the company if I had just sort of found a way to use their resources better and found the Japanese way to deal with it, but not give up totally my American dad mentality. It was, uh, it was difficult. I tried to be an, a pure American in that sense and it didn't really work out. So I would have tried to do it their way a little more. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to find a balance in that situation. And sometimes there's no right answer. There's just better and worse choices that you can't really see until afterwards so yeah yeah benefit of hindsight that's what it is <laughs> but I don't think it's something that we've talked about before on the podcast would you mind telling us a little bit more about that Tanshin Funin system offered at some companies oh yes so this is the tradition it's really a culture unto itself within a subculture of business uh, in Japan of middle managers being or upper managers being sent overseas or to a rural factory or office far away from the main office where they're working without their family. 
and their families aren't even included in the plan usually. It's just presumed you're sent off for, and you can't really say no either. Uh, it's sort of an offer you can't refuse kind of deal. <laughs> and they say, go, go to Thailand for two years and uh, that's it. And Tanch, I don't know how to tra translate it actually, but I did it twice. I was a Tanshin Funian uh, once in San Jose, California for four months at the company's, ironically, their American office there. So I was a reverse expat. <laughs> I was an expat in my home country. Uh, you know, free apartment in San Jose and totally away from my family and miserable. Uh, but a lot of employees take it as like a rest vacation from the bureaucracy of Tokyo, uh, you know, if we get sent there. And that's what it's all about. And I was at Tanshin Funin another time from Tokyo to Osaka with a different company and uh, had an apartment in Osaka um, where I worked during the week and then I could go I went home every every uh, weekend by train, but half the these, I'd say that I knew, oh maybe not half. Twenty percent of employees, especially in sales or non-engineering jobs, get sent on a Tanshin Funin assignment at some point in their career away from their family for you know a year or two or more, and this is uh, it's part of the culture. So you did mention it in the book. It's really not an option, <laughs> like it's against the rules to not accept these positions. So yeah, are there, have you seen employees where that's the bigger part of their job? Like the bigger part of their career is working away from their families. Is that not uncommon? Oh, it's so common. There's, I, I know lots of, I had seen lots of Japanese who had been for years away from their family overseas and uh, saw them a couple times a year, maybe. And I just couldn't believe, yeah, it was just mind boggling to me, uh, that situation. And some of them speak, I mean, not all, they miss their families as much as we do in general, but there were some, some really, really, really surprising number of exceptions to that, of people who just loved it. You know, they loved the, the whole different life they would live. And you can just imagine, you know, uh, they get, paid for apartment and car and chauffeurs if they're in third world countries or, um, you know, can enjoy a lifestyle that is far above what they can afford in Tokyo. So you, that leads to a consumption lifestyle that you could imagine that it's hard to give up for some <laughs> salary men. <laughs> uh, and I saw all of that in different countries, um, factories in Philippines or Malaysia that I would visit with my company or, you know, those people that were reveling in it were living like Kings <laughs> and everyone's like, Oh, he's never going to, he'll never make it. If he's sent back to Tokyo, he'll die. <laughs> and they were like, please don't send me back to Tokyo, please. <laughs> yeah. The quality of life I imagine can be night and day between living in a low cost of living country, especially if it's tropical and picturesque to the concrete jungle of Tokyo. So, yeah. But that's another thing I would love to touch on if you don't mind is the consumer culture with, especially, I guess, in Tokyo, you talked about the salary man consumer culture. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
Well, this is a half joke, half joking economic theory of mine. Half serious, though. There's a point to it. I think, for one, one of the beauties of, of living in Japan is the consumer culture, right? We all know, have different loves of it. For me, though, it was like I could instantly see the way、uh, salarymen and career women and everyone in between was just leaning on this awesome retail services and foods and drink and everything you could have, the tip top service in the world. Just recharge your batteries every day to get through the corporate slog. That, that engine I noticed was a, something going on there. I was just marveled at it and came to lean on it too. I think every, every person in a white collar job in Japan comes to lean on. We, you know, we know it in the US, this is like the, the Starbucks escape or the whatever. It's not about the coffee, it's about the escape. They have that to the, like the hundredth degree. In, in Japan to cater to every degree of、uh, consumption you could want. And so I think that's the thing about Japan that propels it economically is just its consumer culture, its retail、uh, is underrated, probably economically, by the, you know, by all the reports that come out <laughs> saying Japan's a declining country. You know, I just think. Well, if you walk through Ginza or Shinjuku on a Friday night, I think you'd have a different opinion on that. <laughs>、mm -hmm. Yep. People are definitely very active in going out pretty much whenever they have free time, it feels like. If you have time to do something, go do something. It seems like people really don't like to, if you have a family, it's different, of course, but if they can not be at home, they will not be at home. <laughs> they will be、yeah. out doing things. Yeah. Yeah, they, so as a result, they spend much less on their homes and they spend a lot more on their service industry and saving. They save more than us as Americans overall. That's the, I have seen that too. So it's just a dis different displacement of money. Where does it go? You know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I tried to paint that in the book in a humorous way, but there's something to it, I think. I haven't quite pinned it down yet. Maybe my next book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just giving everybody a taste of it for now. <laughs> yeah. So, another thing I'd love to talk about as somebody who is just repatriated is the issue of reverse culture shock. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh, the lack of moderation. Like, I, I've gotten so used to, you know, just using Ponzu just to dabble my, my meat in as a little. And then I bring a Ponzu bottle, and my parents within a week are pouring it all over their rice and over everything. And we've got stacks and stacks of Ponzu bottles because of this addiction and lack of moderation. And just you can imagine my horror when they're pouring Ponzu sauce over white rice. Like that's the reverse. That's one little reverse shock. It's just like that's specific to Japan. But I li literally still have not gotten into a habit of putting dishes in a dishwasher. Like I still prefer to hand wash all my dishes. And it's just like, okay, is it a, a moderation of electricity use? I don't want to like be multi nai and waste electricity, or is it, I don't, I'm cleaner now than I used to be, and I think it's cleaner this way. I've changed and I'm trying to come to terms with it. I can't even use the washer, the, the dryer to dry my clothes without feeling guilty、uh, for wasting electricity. So I'm just little things like that. I'm just like, Geez, I'm American. I have a birthright to blast my clothes with, clo with a dryer for 30 minutes. It's, <laughs> I have to slowly repatriate back to 
my gas guzzling ways, I guess, uh, <laughs> as a, yeah, a little bit of reverse culture shock there. And I can't find good shochu. It's hard to find shochu. In, I, I'm struggling with that. <laughs> even in Chicago? It's hard to find. Hmm. Well, I don't even try here. I'm in West Michigan, so it's not even worth looking. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be a little bit easier on the West Coast. But other than that, yeah, it can be really hard to find quality Japanese goods in the yep. States, that's for sure. So now that you're on the outside of Japan and given the current situation that we're in, we're recording this at the very beginning of March. Um, can you tell us about any changes that you think may be happening in Japanese corporate culture right now? Anything that might be speeding up or? Yeah, I think there's, I noticed the lack of, I would call it young talent coming in to some of the traditional companies. I think they were losing, losing their cachet a bit year by year as a destination for a career. And I haven't seen signs yet of them catching up to that or, or doing something about it. But I imagine that becoming a big problem going forward is the brain drain of just the aging of their middle management. And I'd say the best and brightest it's difficult to attract those kinds of, you know, the best and brightest into your company when you're not offering what's becoming, maybe coronavirus has made it even more obvious. The, the little things that make life easier for people to work and especially female, like it's just notoriously difficult to have a family and a career there. And I, I didn't see many, op, many changes there my, up until 2017 that made me encouraged about some of the, those changes happening. So I'm not quite the expert on that field. I, I just had my point of view in very traditional companies. So my experience was pretty specific, but I, it didn't paint a pretty picture to me for diversity or empowering a female workforce to move up the ranks, uh, having lack of board members with external ties, you know, not tied into the company directly or no foreign board members. I found those things kind of troubling. So I'm curious to see where, where the traditional Japanese companies go, if that's something that over time just slowly evolves or if it will never change. That's just something I just, I can't answer yet, but I'm doubtful. It's so hard to know. But what's happening with this talent drain? Is it just a matter of demographics, just not having enough young people? Or are the young people trying to get into more globally minded companies? Are they getting attracted by startups? What's the situation there? Yeah, I do think that's, I think companies like Rakuten or Amazon or Apple are now right up there at the top every year of the newspaper rankings of top destinations by poll, you know, with the new graduates of the Toyotas and the, are, there's, you still see those up there too, but you didn't see all of those foreign names or upstart names from Japanese IT, for example, up there. So I have noticed that like the Rakuten's and the Japanese entrepreneurs make the rounds now on a lot of the talk shows and become stars and you don't hear about the the Sony's or the the Toyota, you know, people. You don't see them on talk shows. You don't see them 
mixing it up on different media outlets. So that I did notice because I watched a lot of Japanese talk show TV over there and tried to keep my pulse and my Japanese up doing that. And I, I think that's worth noting. I think that's a sign of being more multimedia, more accessible, less closed off. Those um, companies like Rakuten and there's nameless others that um, are countless others that, that would fit into that, that, that kind of company that are sort of changing them. The idea that you have to stay forever at a company or that you, you know, those companies have announced things like Rakuten announced they have a bilingual requirement. The offices speak English and Japanese and like things like that are shaking things up. The tradition, I think those happened while I was there and you hadn't seen that in my first couple of years in Japan. So I, I think there's change happening if you look at it enough through the media. Yeah, I've definitely heard mixed opinions on this where some people think that the upcoming generation is extremely risk averse, but other ones find that they're still aggressively seeking out companies that have better work-life balance, better benefits, things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess we'll just, it's probably both to be honest. Like there's probably a strong push in different areas. Like you want security, but you also want to have that sort of flexibility. But I guess we'll just see if these large traditional companies can adapt because things are only speeding up, it seems like. Yeah, actually going to Amazon Japan was a very interesting case or bookend to my experience. It was 99% Japanese in the office, but a lot of them came from traditional Japanese companies, including my boss who came from Toshiba uh, after 20 years or 25 years there. And, you know, he made the leap. He's just, he, it was financially better. It was work-life balance better and to go to Amazon for him. And that opened my eyes to another part of Japan that's seizing that ability to make uh, mid-career change that I didn't really see in the traditional companies I had been at. Um, they all joked, my, my colleagues at Amazon Japan were like, how in the world did you work at that company? I could never work at that place, that traditional place I worked. They were like, I can't believe you. You know, they just couldn't imagine me doing more up morning lineups and roll calls and uh, hanko every day and, you know, ringi show and uh, all the, the rules. They just, they're like, there's a part of Japan that, that thinks that that kind of thing is a little tough too. So it's not just us Americans who look at that and think, oh, they're so formal. A lot of Japanese do too. <laughs> and that was, that was very pleasant for me to see, you know, it was an education to, to see that part of the workforce um, and where they came from. Because mm -hmm. I just had a guest on who was talking about how you can, I guess, kind of have a do-over at the beginning of your career. But if you switch companies mid-career, it's kind of seen as traitorous or you're unreliable or something like that. So it's good to see that that mindset is starting to shift a little bit too. Yeah, I think you're allowed a couple moves. <laughs> then That's you good. get a little. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us a specific example of a communication breakdown that you had, maybe that we haven't covered yet, that you think was due to differences in culture? Oh boy, I don't know how much more time we have. Yeah. <laughs> the book gets into a lot of them. Yeah, if you need oh, more, man. be sure to get the book. Where do I start? Um, <laughs> I These are all very specific. So I am 
a completely inept at Hanko, the hand stamp, traditional hand stamp signature tool. I still can't do it right. It's always smudged or a little crooked or, and they inevitably somebody comes back and says, do it again, <laughs> do it right. It has to be perfectly lined up, boom, and sign it. And it got so bad at one company, the HR person just couldn't take it anymore. And he scheduled a meeting with my boss, the three of us, to show me how to do a hunko hand stamp. <laughs> they're like, it's like I was, uh, you know, in, when they're taking your fingerprints at, in your, uh, at a police station in the movies, and they're holding your hand and smudging it on the sheet to get it. It felt like they were almost treating me like a prisoner <laughs> to, uh, to do a hand stamp correctly. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, what else happened? The facilities department in the little factory I was working in once, there were only 20 people there, complained to my boss about me tearing the toilet paper crooked. <laughs> it offended somebody that it was messy and jagged or something. They wanted it perfectly flat around the dotted uh, perforated edge. <laughs> and I literally heard about it from my boss. Uh, so, I mean, that level of minutia nitpicking was like, oh, drove me crazy. Oh, one of the crowning miscommunications was my wife at the time was Japanese. Her grandfather died and uh, it was, he lived in a, in a far West Japan city. And I had almost no vacation days left with the company. So I was like, oh, geez, if I'm going to go to this funeral, how am I going to do this? And so I asked my HR director, oh, if my wife's grandfather died, do I get a, a day off? Is that part of a benefit? Because I know if my grandfather died, I could get a day off. And I didn't know that I couldn't read the rules well. And even he had trouble understanding the rule book. He dug into it and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get the day off. Go ahead. So I booked the ticket. Next day, he comes back and goes, ah, Mike's song, Mike's song. I was wrong. I read it again. No. Only your grandfather, not your wife's grandfather. And I was like, oh, I booked the ticket. Uh, and the cancellation fee was like, you know, itchy my yang. And I said, well, what do I do? I told him my situation. And he's like, can't you use vacation? No, I can't. I don't have any more. And then he was just like, ah, well, sorry. And I'm like, well, can I expense the, I was being a little pushy at this pushing it then. I was like, can I expense the cancellation fee at least? This wasn't my mistake. At that point, he lost it because that would expose his mistake that he was mistaken to officially tell me I could go ahead. And so to save his face, I ate the cancellation fee and just, you know, worked in the office. So I didn't get to go with my wife to her grandfather's funeral and I lost Ichimaya. <laughs> I was not a happy camper. It's just like those little communication breakdowns happen all the time. Mm -hmm. I love that reading the rule book is like deciphering an ancient text. Like you have to be careful and in interpreting it and reading it carefully. It shouldn't be this hard. <laughs> like it should, it should be a lot easier for everyone to understand what they can and can't do, but that's interesting. And also the fact that they were able to track down that it was you with the toilet paper is also very <laughs> impressive. It was a small factor. Otherwise I would have been, there, there would have been safety in numbers. Uh, but this was like 
you know, there's only five people this could have been, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yep. Might have been easier than I guess. So then if you were speaking with somebody who was going to Japan for business and you could only teach them one thing about the country before they headed over, what would you choose to teach them? Moderation, modesty, that kind of thing. Try to tone it down. Try to show it at least. Exhibit it. Show you're making an effort to be modest or moderate in your um yeah, like some of these, we went through a lot of these examples, but like, I wouldn't recommend going in with like hardcore demands, try to show that you're, comp you're compromising from the start. Like, for example, like if you're like, oh, I have to go home for two weeks every summer to see my family and that can come off as a little greedy or a little over, overbearing. Be like, oh, can I just do a week? Would that be okay? You know, I was thinking two weeks, but I, I can do a week. To start with that approach where it's like you're showing moderation in your in your approach that can sort of take the edge off some of like the you know it, it can definitely build up credibility or harmony or whatever you call it relationship with with people if you show that you're making those kinds of efforts so that's not so specific but uh, i think that's a good attitude to go in with is moderation or moderate your demands or your opinions. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind because I feel like one common American response to uncertainty is to become more confident, to become more loud, to become more like to kind of intensify yourself to feel like you have control over the situation, which doesn't work if you're in Japan so well. So. Yeah, if you right. have that impulse, try to be aware of that. Not everybody does, of course, but that's something I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, the loudest person wins sometimes in the U.S., and that isn't usually the case in Japan. <laughs> At least not long term. <laughs> it usually doesn't work out too well. Right. So was there anything else you wanted to chat about? Anything we missed? Oh, no, just that I'm looking for people to give me feedback on the book, what they liked or what I missed, uh, what they experienced, subscribe to my, to my website. There'll be updates. It's free. The manga, every series that comes out, I'd love to have new subscribers and uh, I'd love to get people's own stories. Those are great. Whenever I get those, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Be sure to check out the memoir if you want to see the whole story, or like you said, subscribe to figure out when you can get a hold of the manga. And we'll be sure to link everything up in the description of the episode as well. And thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. And be sure to check out the links in the description of the episode to learn more about Michael's memoir and manga series. And also be sure to subscribe to his email list to be kept up to date. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the messages and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. And feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. If you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do so in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. 
Until next time, mata kondo.